man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater, and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over, and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom-scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. Haritia Lumumba claims he was racially vilified at Collingwood by some of his teammates. He says it started early in his career and lasted through to 2013. Some got around him, he knows who they are, whilst others dismissed him as unhinged and, as such, unbelievable. That became the narrative. I played with Haritia in his last year at Collingwood. When I met him, he was a proud black man and a strong advocate against racism. He was 27, he journeyed into himself and found his culture and his voice. I've been on a similar journey. Today, I'm strong enough to call out racism when I experience it, but that's taken a long time. At school, when I was a teenager, I couldn't do it. When my own mates made hurtful, racist jokes about me, I laughed. Why? I was desperate to fit in. I was a black kid in a white school. I didn't want to make a scene. If that concept feels foreign, consider whether you've ever laughed to hide your hurt feelings. Recently, I told my mates about those jokes. I let them know how they'd hurt me. They were shocked. Why didn't you say something? I explained, they listened and apologised. None of them dismissed me as unhinged. That's why they're still my mates. When Haritia Lumumba joined Collingwood, he was a black teenager in a white culture who was desperate to fit in. This week, every single footy player took a knee against racism. What an incredible moment. In the spirit of that gesture, we should consider whether racism is defined by how a victim reacts at the time or how they feel. We should consider why I laugh may hide a scar, while the bearing of that scar, years later, isn't unhinged. It's brave. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, sometimes you, you know, in this community, the international sort of film community, you see a voice emerging uh, in in sort of everyone's conception and you sort of see them simmering away and it's never overnight. It's toil. That person who you finally see break out and I guess find their voice has been working their butt off for many years, honing their craft and, and, and working for a bunch of different publications. And the person that I'm talking to today is that kind of person. It's a person who I read an absolutely incredible account of the release experience of Guns Akimbo, which in and of itself was another huge uh, 
shall we say, garbage fire in 2020 um, <laughs> of this mounting garbage fire that this entire year is. Uh, and I was completely blown away. And since then, I've been following his work quite a lot. We do have a few mutual friends. And I think that basically, you know, the international community um, have started to really see and, and see him and see his incredible written voice um, in probably what is one of the best writings on the recent Star Wars trilogy um, about it's missing its opportunity to engage with the blackness of John Boyega's Finn. He has written for RogerEbert.com, of course, amazing. Chicago-based Consequence of Sound, um, who are friends of the show. Now Polygon, The Playlist, The Spool, and many other places. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Robert Daniels to the show. Mate, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Blake. Um, it's kind of interesting that Guns Akimbo might not end up on the top 10 dumpster fires in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in, in any other year, in any other year, you can hope. You can hope that something as small as like a controversy that happened online with a director who seemed to, I don't know, like strangely self-fulfill a prophecy that he was telling in his story, and, but take it to the worst possible thing. That is not even going to be a blip on the radar of 2020. Like I, I think you and me might be the only two people um, who are going to remember Guns of Kimbo at the end of this year, because it is just like, a, it's, 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 it's not even going to register. It's not cutting through whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 almost forgot that it was this year I, I someone had brought it to my attention uh, a week ago and I was like no that was in December and I had to look back I was like oh that was like three months ago yeah <laughs> it sure was <laughs> it, you, you mean you're like oh it was December in 2016 right no no <laughs> 2020 has indeed taken 10 years just to get us here um and we've got at least 10 to go uh yeah so look um I'm really happy that you're on the show. Um, I'm, I'm really stoked that, um, you know, out of all of this mess and chaos that um, you're getting some opportunities uh, to sort of showcase your film mind in bigger contexts. Um, really love the Star Wars piece. But I wanted to get your mind, cast it back to 1976, cast it back to this movie. Um, and and I and it was so funny when I was rewatching your minute. It's like you know, well, if this story is so important, who the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? It's basically the line that bridges the minute before the minute that we're going to talk about for you, which is the fifty seventh minute, and the fifty eighth minute, which is your minute to talk about essentially, or for us to chat about together. And I just thought that that was just such an interesting thing. Is that you know, you yourself are sharing a little bit of that voice emerging right now. And someone might go, who the hell is Robert Daniels um, uh, writing this great stuff? And I just thought, well, that's, this is kind of a osmosis right now. So before we get to this editorial meeting, this concern editorial meeting around, are we doing the right thing? You know, them deliberating over what stories are important and what is or isn't potentially dangerous. Um, what's your relationship with sort of, even new Hollywood cinema, uh, because really it's, you know, even Ben Shapiro, that bastion of wisdom has even drawn the uh, comparison between our contemporary times and 1968 to 1980, which is, you know, an incredible upheaval for um, socio-political discourse and civil rights and, um, uh, you know, the emergence of independent new Hollywood. Um, what's your relationship with that cinema of that time? Um, yeah, so 
when I think about that cinema, um, obviously you have like all the presidents, men, um, you have like Midnight Cowboy, um, and it's interesting because like I had kind of um, been watching all these films before I knew what New Hollywood was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, as, and then like as I did too, until someone's like, "Oh, that's New Hollywood." You're like, "What? It's new what?" Yeah, what what is this thing? What are these what are these foreign words you're using? <laughs> <laughs> but I I I had, you know, grown up a fan of all these films, you know, Dog Day Afternoon and and just, you know, just the plethora of stuff that came out in uh the seventies, which is you know the specific time frame we're talking about. Um and then, you know, years later becoming a film critic and starting to connect the dots on many of these films and being like, Oh, he was in this one. He was in that one. He was in this one, right? <laughs> you have like someone like um, uh, cinematographer of all the presidents, man, uh, Gordon Willis, you know, who's like in Godfather <laughs> and a million other things, you know. And so it's this, it's noticing. It was probably the first time I had noticed uh, outside of the Hollywood studio system, which obviously this comes on the heels of the collapse of the. Uh, the Hollywood studio system um, outside of that, seeing the connections between films, seeing the recurrent players, um, whether above the line or below the line and seeing visions and themes repeating. Yeah. It's uh, I, I, it's funny that, you know, you say that cause that I think back to before I even knew what new Hollywood was. And I think a lot of people do it. It's just that you, you find yourself and there's a lot of like seven seventies movie heads and you find yourself just like being swallowed by the decade. And you're like, well, why am I so fascinated by this? Like stories they're all kind of out of the same period. And they've all got this cohort of great actors and oh, there's some of the same names, even with drastically different subject matter, like above and below the line um, here. And it's just, and I don't know, it just seems, it's, it's such a rote word these days, but it just seems like it's got more of an edge. It just seemed like it was willing to engage and not just accept the status quo, but engage with it. Um, and so, yeah, I just think I, I, that's what I, I had a very similar experience where you're just watching these films, consuming them over and over again, and they're seeming to jive with you. And you're like, well, this is good. Like all of this is good. I like all of this. And then you get to like Rambo two and, uh, and you're like, what happened? <laughs> what, did we, what, what did we just do for a decade? Why do we need this now? What is going on? <laughs> you know what? You know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to Rambo too, <laughs> but in the context of everything that come before, obviously <laughs> step down a little it, bit of a step it, down <laughs> hey, in principle. I'm not, a, this is, this is my in defense of Rambo two argument for you, Howard. I've had enough of you sliding Rambo two on this podcast. Um, so talking specifically now, like you're a film critic, you're writing at a, a bunch of different places. I think you and I broadly are of the same generation in that as we're coming up, it is extremely rare um, or, or, or just definitely in a wind down of going into what is a traditional newspaper setting or a traditional media outlet setting for print media and sitting down at a desk and having a cohort of like, here's a theater critic and here's the film critic and here's the book critic. Like you and I are kind of probably outsiders to that experience. So how, how did, how did all the president's men come into your consciousness? And was it more of a, okay, well, you know, Watergate is this, is this huge thing? Is this, 
you know, omnipresent word in our culture. And was that sort of your gateway to Watergate or was it you sort of in a run of these movies and journalism movies when you first came to it? Yeah. So in terms of Watergate, um, I'm kind of like a, like a presidential nerd. So to speak. Oh, so right. I've always like been aware of Watergate. Um, and at some point when I was in high school, um, I remember taking philosophy and my, philosophy teacher was this like big film buff and we'd watch stuff like ace in the hole um and barry linden and for some reason he just saw that like i kind of had an itch to scratch it he was like hey have you ever seen all the president's men i was like no i've not seen all the president's men and he was like oh okay well tomorrow i'll i'll lend you my dvd i was like oh okay cool thank you you know i (laughs) you know took it home not knowing much and uh, obviously like even at the age of 17 was absolutely blown away because as you said like this era of film just hasn't it has an edginess to it you know it's uh it's not like it's it's badly shot it's it's you know shot fantastically but it, it you know all these films have like kind of like dark lighting. They look a little bit grimy, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little bit dirty. You know, it just it just feels like you are in this space where people are pushing the boundaries. And for uh, for a teenager, that was all I needed to see, all oh, I needed yeah. to hear. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but in terms of like the newsroom aspect, yeah, that somewhat I mean, somewhat is foreign to me. Um, I went to grad school for i went to undergrad and grad school for english and like the closest conception that we get to that is workshopping you know you have writers around the table everyone has each other's piece talking about each other's piece you're you know you know um there's like later in the film there's this like moment where like ben bradley is like still too thin (laughs) yes and that that feels like um what tends to happen at workshop <laughs> <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say that the, the the concept of the workshop just made me cringe as in you know you can definitely have your your people your like trusted advisors where you're like i just can you just glance at this and but in a in a room with like a whole bunch of strangers and they're like it's still too thin you're like what you want you know it feels like a confrontational like <laughs> like waiting to happen uh for well, me and then you, you also get you know in a workshop setting you start like creating almost imaginary enemies you know like blake always has something to say <laughs> negative to say about my stuff <laughs> like he must hate me <laughs> oh man it's a nightmare um and and then you just you you at some point you know you become an adult you rationalize you realize no Blake had a point and this is actually terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you start at there, it, but so I I guess that's that's a good line in the sand because you know so many of the different diverse guests that I've spoken to here I have other relationships with whether they are journos, active journalists, former journalists, TV journalists, uh, etc. And then film folk from a variety of like our intergenerational sort of footprint of film film folk that are out there have had experiences in the newsroom, but I guess it's cool to hear you being a bit of a Watergate head. Like that's where it starts for you is being a, a presidential nerd, this kind of thing. This, this is your itch to scratch and it's a high school experience that sort of gets you and drags you into this one. Yeah. And uh, talk about like current print media, the state of it. Um, mm. um, I remember, you know, when I was in undergrad, that was the beginning of the fall of, of, uh, what was considered the fall like physical media you know yeah. uh, napster and 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 subscriptions for 
newspapers plummeting and then also um, the rise of ebooks and like, you know, every professor I had was just like, the best advice I can give you is to get out of this game. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad advice. It's not bad advice. No, and, and in 2020 hindsight, very prescient. <laughs> it's not bad advice. Yeah, you, you, can't be, you can't begrudge them for being candid with you like I would get out. But also the undeterred, such as yourself, uh, you know, it's like you were kind of meant to do it. But the people who did turn back were not meant to do it. Yeah, the, the, uh, the best writers are usually uh, the ones that didn't make it, actually. They can't get, <laughs> can get turned around. Yeah, so I... I it's a fascinating thought because even today I feel like the narrative of like media dying started out with what the, the channel or the medium was like the, what was it a physical medium? Is it online? Is it, this, is it that? Um, but I think what is more challenging for us and what's probably a more meaty conversation and something that I know that probably both in you, you and I and engage with is the concept that, that, the media itself, the news media's pandering, the news media's like mechanisms because they're ultimately often owned by corporate entities um, are often getting accused and op-edited by people who've somehow managed to be adjacent to the system. They're basically killing themselves. They're like their political agendas worn on their sleeves are killing what their role is. And, and I think it's, this thing won't die. It's like, it's not a cat that's got nine lives. It's got a thousand lives, but it's still like people who are in and out of it. And even as recently as Matt Taibbi, he used to write for the Rolling Stone, who's now an independent journalist has, you know, just wrote recently wrote a massive op-ed piece on his own, on his own side about, you know, media, but dying again. And it's just like, it doesn't feel like it's ever in a state of not dying. If that doesn't make sense. Like ever since this <laughs> since the moment that is portrayed in this film, like rather than journalists being lionized in perpetuity, it feels like since this moment, the power or the ability for journalists to speak truth to power in such a way and, and to, and to hold them to account. It feels like since then, it's been in a constant state of frenzy and attack. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's the entities that own the media, uh, media, um, and it's also just the type of reporting changing, you know, where um, uh, Twitter and online media has made it that you have to be first you know yes. more so than than even because you know that's a constant refrain and all the president's men they're trying to beat the new york times on this story and yet it feels like everything today is in hyperdrive where i mean i'm sure you see it too like you'll see something on twitter and it'll be retweeted a million times and then you actually read into it and there actually isn't much sourcing behind it yeah <laughs> and then well something's like, trending you something's trending yeah. and you go where did this come from and you go back and you're like where, where did <laughs> what source is it like this is and it happens in a stupid way and we see it a lot in like movie nude movie news like movie nerd news and something's trending and you go back and look at it and you're like an unnamed source in like a in like a bl movie blog just posted this and it got retweeted this many times it's like this isn't from a trade or an exclusive or a or a proper legitimate interview this is nothing what are you talking about yeah and even you know i i you know sometimes gripe at the um the the language losing its meaning where everyone yeah. you know has to put exclusive well you're the tenth person to talk about it. it's not an exclusive anymore. Oh God. <laughs> or I, everything's breaking. You know? <laughs> maybe maybe it's just our friends or our combined timelines. But I love when people 
some, you know, the great thing about Twitter where, you know, you see four photos and they're four screenshots of people who've called the same exclusive. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's it. That's what, that's what this is. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm quite fortunate, you know, um, I, I do, I write a few reviews a month for the great Australian um, movie news publication, Dark Horizons. And, um, you know, I think Garth, as my editor would say, you know, that he'll give me an assignment knowing that I'm probably not going to be first because often we haven't got the screeners first or we haven't been in that line or we haven't, whatever. And so I kind of relish like being a little bit out of step um, of the chaos. And, and I'm sure that you've got the, the inverse battle, which is like, Hey, I've got to have all these thoughts. I've got to be really clear and clean and, and, and have, I want to say everything I want to say about whatever I'm talking about and I need to get it out there so that it gets circulated. But I think sometimes I, you know, um, maybe in a positive or negative, sometimes we're like, I'm going to be a week behind everyone, a week late on every, everyone here because I haven't got early access to it. So I'm watching it with everyone else. And then I'm thinking of what I want to write and I'm not, I think sometimes it's freeing when you're like, I'm just going to write about what I want to write about. I'm going to write about what I want to write about. Even if you're slightly outside the timeline, something a bit freeing about that, which is like, again, what this story does and what this movie does, it luxuriates in, you know, this is an important story. We feel like it's important. You've got to chase it down. Hell at some points it is thin, but at the end of the day, like the, the dedication for them to be on this and give them the time to do it is, is, is pretty cool. It also depends on your editors, which is the great thing about when we see the editorial meeting um, about them talking about these stories and where to place them. Um, you know, I know Brian Tallarico of Roger Ebert, uh, he has told us multiple times, he's like, I don't care how quick you get it to me, just get it to me right. That's all that matters. Yes. <laughs> and that, that is freeing because there are opportunities like film festivals where, you know, you might have you might have an hour and a half to write write the review and get it in you know write it edit get it in and that's it <laughs> you on to the next thing on to the next one yeah i've 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 i've, I've done that a couple of times in uh, in the past and i don't I tend not to do it as much as possible because i just feel like <laughs> whenever i read them back like a year later i'm like ugh that was gross like even if it is clean <laughs> It has a couple of points. I'm like, if that had another hour, it would have been so much better. If that had a day, it would be great. You know, like it's, but it's just, ugh. anyway, it's the battle, the battle, the battle for us. Um, the battle for us when you're turning something around so quickly. Um, let's get into this minute because okay. it's a really good one. It is the 58th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And what I've known, noticed now, I, I've called it Alan J. Pakula's masterpiece, but um, maybe I just want to take the refrain that, that from a production standpoint, Robert Redford truly is a potential auteur in this um, because of his involvement at every conceivable level from acting, from hiring the person who wrote the script to on the fly changes to the script during production to the entire you know, the assignment of Alan Dapakula to this, to, to the, the engagement with Carl uh, Bernstein and Bob Wilbur when they're writing the book and, and how to frame the story. Like he's such a part of it. So um, I might have to change it up from, the, from, from some of our future episodes that haven't already been recorded to say Robert Redford and Alan Dapakula's 1976 masterpiece. So Robert and I are going to watch the minute in question. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. 
Jackson, Elder Woodward, and Bernstein. Well, now, what do you expect him to say from the White House? You're doing a great job? Yeah, I am. Why don't you ask him what he's really saying? He wants to take the, the, the story away from Woodstein and, and uh, give it to... At least I have some best. experienced guys sitting around who know the politicians who have the contacts. We're aware of exactly what you, like you said it, sitting around. Dan, it's a dangerous story for this paper. What if your boys get it wrong? Then it's our ass, isn't it? Well, we all have to go out and work for a living. Yeah. All right, <laughs> National gets eight columns, nine for foreign. Metro, 15. That's it, folks. Okay. Hey, Scott. We've seen you. How dangerous. Well, it's not just that we're using unnamed sources that bothers me. Or that everything we print, the White House denies. There it is, my friend. And it's our ass. Isn't that a <laughs> nice, isn't that a nice sentiment? That it's like, what if we get it wrong? Then it's our ass, isn't it? I love, you know, obviously almost every single word that Jason Robard speaks as Ben Bradley is out of this world great. But I love that one in particular because it, you know, it makes meaningful the whole concept of like, this is why this, this is why this entire meeting exists. It's to protect the paper. It's to protect their reporters. It's, it's to make sure that the, there's accountability for what is being said to the American public. It's, it's, a, it's terrific. Yeah, and it also contributes to just the, the veneer of Ben Bradley. You know, he has his two feet up on the desk. He's the lounging back. You know, he's in full confidence of the room. You know, um, uh, it's brought up to him that, like, this could cost, cost everyone their jobs, and he cracks a joke. But <laughs> something in the back of his mind, <laughs> yeah. he is worried. He is worried. He doesn't show it in front of the rest of the editors, but he is worried. That's, that's the kind of nice push and pull with his humanity in this movie. It's like what really, I'm sorry to talk about another movie to talk about this scene, but um, I think another really good journalism movie is a, a movie called State of Play. It was the UK remake. It had Russell Crowe and Ben Affleck and uh, Rachel McAdams. Um, and Helen Mirren. And it's a really interesting movie. If for one reason and one reason only, it's that it does genuinely show a bit of a bridge between old physical daily paper media and the emerging blog space. So like how those two things are butting up against each other. But I was watching it and nothing infuriated me more than Helen Mirren's editor, who was just like, we need clicks. We need clicks. Damn it. We need clicks. And she's just like, it just really it, it kind of like wasn't the movie, like I'd, I'd been watching much, far too much of this movie, far too much of maybe Spotlight with Lee Schreiber's terrific performances, the editor there as well. And I just, like, she's just like, was completely negligent in their reporting because they needed the exclusive and they needed to be first. And maybe I was disappointed because that's the reality. And <laughs> maybe she was actually being really true to life and authentic in a paper that is feeling that pressure. Um, but but I just remember being so annoyed. And what I like here is that, you know, he can crack wise, but like actually the guys are in this room to have their opinion and he will listen to them. Like he's not just, he's not just ruling over a fiefdom, even though he looks like he is um, these guys, he, he actually values their opinion. And when he's like, this is dangerous, this is here. He, he doesn't, he doesn't discount that. He's like, I need to be prepared for this, which I think is all the more admirable for him and, and just makes Bradley more lovable. I think in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, fully agree. So 
Talk to me about this scene, this editorial uh, uh, crew getting inches in a paper. Tell me, tell me everything that you love about this scene and then we can branch out as uh, using this as a portal into, I guess, the things, Robert, that really resonate with you in this movie. So I guess what I immediately notice is um, there is not much cutting. <laughs> See, there's not, you know, you know, in a scene like this, sometimes like in modern cinema, you know, you would have John Devlin's character um, and uh, Paul Lambert's character who are kind of doing this volley back and forth mm. about whether they should trust Woodward or Bernstein. And in today's cinema, you would probably get like, you know, cut to Devlin, cut to Lambert, cut to Devlin, cut to Lambert, Mate Lambert. You, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you might get like a two shot somewhere in there. Yes. But for the most part, it just stays. It just yeah. stays, you know. And there's, there's, he, Pakula adding tension to the scene to a scene that is in some way like tenuous you know this is the future of the paper (laughs) you know and they get this wrong (laughs) Uh, as Ben Bradley says it'll be their ass (laughs) Um, um, I also and like the the main thing that I love about him not cut is because like the shot itself this full shot um it has just great composition you know um from the way every actor is positioned um i love um, their postures i love watching people in an argument sitting down and i don't know if you've ever had this experience but i've worked in some corporate environments because you're watching the ebb and flow of the power of who feels like they're on top in the way that, you know, I'm, I'm doing it for you on my zoom chat right now, but it's like <laughs> the way that people are leaning in and, and or sitting back or what are they, what they're doing with their hands. And so I love that the animation is just people shifting in their chairs and shifting their bodies and changing their postures and changing the way they're holding court. Yeah. Other, other than the words that are being spoken, that is the action of the scene. You know? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you don't need explosions. Uh, you just need people shifting in their chairs. <laughs> don't need to blow up a plane for tenant. <laughs> you just need people shifting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just love the positioning. Um, I love the way that uh, Devlin and Lambert are positioned. And then they have, um, to the editors in the middle separating them so there is this clear opposition um in terms of the space um something that oh that actually for some reason just stuck out to me before uh today watching it rewatching it um is the extra in the right hand corner that has this like manila uh colored shirt with this red tie and he sticks out among like all these characters that have basically gray white button-up shirts um but it's if you know when the scene gets about to the three quarters mark he's the first one to get up so it's almost like pakula is is foreshadowing his future blocking of like this is how everyone's going to leave the scene he's going to be the first to get up and leave and then everyone else will follow yes and it's 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 funny hierarchically how that works as well it feels like the folks who know they like they're not quite a senior editor yet. They don't have a huge role. Like they've said their bit, they've got their thing, and they're out of there. Like they don't <laughs> they don't have as much of a. I guess they don't have as much of a forum to like to stay in the room. It's like okay, cool, yep, see you. I'm out. Bye. Yeah, he's also the person who is uh who is most enjoying this this volley that's happening. Oh yeah, he's leaning forward, he's smiling. Oh, <laughs> he's having a great time. I love I yes. love the, I love the audience. I. Lo- in the makeup of this scene, there's a couple of people I like. I love him. And I love the kind of, 
Um, I don't know exactly what his position is, but the, the, the younger editor who's like, Oh Ben, we should definitely cover this. And he's kind of like the late, the least bravado um, and the le- of all of the guys around the table and, and, li- and they take the time to listen to him. Like they give him his air. They don't just completely bust his balls into oblivion. Like they just go, okay, well, we'll let you talk. But I love those, those outliers in this scene because, you know, the main players we've seen, we've seen Martin Balsam, we've seen um, Jack Warden, we've seen Ben Bradley. And then you're getting introduced and, you know, with John McMartin coming into it in this scene, you're getting introduced mm-hmm. to all these new faces, new people, um, in this scene that it's that make up the team that have equal weight equal or more weight um in in some of these conversations which is really cool yeah I was, yeah of course like you know going from the full shot with everyone in, in in composition and when everyone leaves then you actually get the main players you get you know the two shot and then you get yeah. um you get the close-up of john mcmartin and um and yeah i mean like it's just it's a great lesson in patience and editing (laughs) it's a great lesson in composition and it's you know comparative to the other sections of the movie the new obviously the newsroom scenes are always brightly lit um as compared to the outside shots which are always darkly lit you know the newsroom is this bastion of truth clarity you know at least somewhat high morals on the outside is where people obfuscate. It is, uh, truth is not always clear and morality is often its lowest common denominator. Yeah. And it's, it feels like the, the brightness of the outside world is all at the beginning of the movie too, you know, and, and, and it starts to even make you feel uncomfortable in well-lit spaces outside. So at the beginning when Bernstein's sitting down and, you know, having a chat with a friend in a, in a park, a source rather in a park. And he's, you know, drinking from his tartan flask. Um, it's, <laughs> it's all sunny and nice. And then later on in the film, in the bright spaces, there's a moment where Bernstein's talking to his FBI source and they're walking near the white house and someone, a tourist is standing in line to go into the white house and the camera turns on them and takes a snap. And I just, there's that, that shot gives me chills when I think about it because it's just like the, in, they have no idea the ramifications of what they're in and what they're doing. But that being said, especially in the last, you know, we, we are now recording this episode for folks who are listening. You guys are going to hear it probably um, a, a few days after we've actually recorded it, maybe a week after we've recorded it, but we're recording this on Friday, the 19th of June. And the threat of violence against journalists is as bad as it gets in this film. Whereas the threat of like, whereas, Police are like smashing journalists in the face, shooting them with tear gas, shooting them with pepper bullets, beating up people in the streets, you know, shooting tear gas into crowds for photo opportunities. The madness is like, it makes this, it makes this, you know, this bastion of truth and morality feel strangely detached. Like it's sort of this world that's not really real anymore. Yeah. It, it, you know, it feels like, I mean, now granted, like there are moments where, you know, Woodward and Bernstein <laughs> um, do maybe like question borderline questionably, like, you know, immoral oh, yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> um, like the, I'm not, I think her name's Sally, like the, the female reporter who has uh, been out with a source the previous night, you know, <laughs> um, or them getting, um, I can't remember, I don't think it's the same reporter, but getting um, a reporter to go out with a past fiance. To, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. To, Pe- to Penny, full of, 
Penny Fuller plays Sally Aitken and they ask her to, you know, to, to get someone on record for them. And, and, you know, she talks about them being able to smell blood and, and then Lindsay Krauss, um, he's a great actor, plays Kay Eddie. And, uh, they're like, you know, maybe you should go. And she's like, I'm going to have to see him. He's my ex fiance. He's this and that. I don't want to do it. And yeah, they do. They do some questionable stuff. These guys they've got, you know, I, I think Sally says, I don't smell blood like you guys do. And it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. And in, I mean, to go back to this scene, but, uh, mechanically, like, um, Unless I'm wrong, this might be one of like maybe three or four scenes where neither Woodward or Bernstein are featured. Yeah. True. Yeah. So it very much is, you know, you're getting the entire, as compared to the rest of the film, you're getting to the entire hierarchy of a newsroom. Yes. Um, that it's not just Woodward and Bernstein. Because, like, I mean, if you were to take these scenes, this scene out specifically, you know, it would basically be Wood, Woodward and Bernstein being cowboys on the way in the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, this is like, you know, not every story makes it to the front page. And here's why not every story makes it to the front page. What's cool about this is that a lot of people are happy. Like a lot of people are fine. <laughs> they're not in that. They're not in the argument for the front page. But when you've got like the Metro and then the polit like the politics and maybe the foreign, they are wrangling for it. Like it feels like some of the guys like they might, you know, there may even be the culture editor, Robert, that you and I could imagine and wistfully sort of go, Oh, wouldn't it be fun to work to imagine ourselves there and be like Kenny Tyrion and be in the culture department in the in Washington Post and Watergate times. Um, but like they could be there and be like, I'm not ever getting the front page. I don't care. Uh, like I'm just telling you what's leading for my section, you know, like this is what's going on and this is what's happening. Okay, cool. This is what's going on. Yep. Great. See you later. I'm not going to get in the fight about the front page, but yeah, you can see that Metro and politics are like having a, a nice tussle to see who's going to, who's going to dominate if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you definitely can. Um, I'm trying to remember where they are in the shot. If they're oppositionally seated, you definitely get that sense of like some people are, just happy to be in the room. <laughs> and then, uh, you know. I'm just, I'm just guys. I'm just really happy to be here. I don't have anything. I don't have anything to share. Uh, just really happy. <laughs> Open the check clears tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. When you're looking at the rest of this movie, what, what particularly resonates with you for these guys? Is is it the makeup of like actually? getting the authenticity of this is an editorial moment offset with the, like the obsessive, you know, these are two guys, two cowboys, if you, to use your words, like going through and grinding through this case um, or, or, or are there certain other practices and scenes make the movie for you that stand out when you're just reflecting on it? Like that, that sort of really leap out at you. I guess it's the, uh, the verbal tricks that Woodward and Bernstein use to uh, get confirmations Um <laughs> yeah they're very good yeah, i use some of those verbal tricks to book people for this show <laughs> it is, it robert robert i'm gonna count to 10 and if you're still <laughs> on the phone it means you're doing this podcast <laughs> yes you have you have that moment you have the moment where uh they're talking you're they're going back to um 
uh, one of the uh, uh, people who worked in the, you know, who, one of the women who worked in accounting and, you know, Rob Redford is like, well, let's just use the name Porter and let's see if she, you know, basically plays along with it. And if she confirms Porter for us because she thinks we know it's Porter. And by us saying that it's Porter. And then Hoffman's like, so wait, that, I love that. Cause then Hoffman interrupts. He goes, wait, so, so wait, I say, I say P you say mm -hmm. Porter. And I say it's mm -hmm. Porter. We know it's P. We know it's Porter. And then she doesn't say it. That's confirmation. And you're like, it's it's yeah. That's I I I I completely agree. It is one of my, it's one of my favorite moments because it is. It's kind of a much like this scene that we're talking about. It's like a behind the curtain strategic moment. You know, like here we're seeing the sort of really raw and authentic like you know, this feel good story is going to get read more than anything else in the paper. This is the front page. This is this. Let's stop arguing about what's above and below the line. This is what's leading. See you later. Um, but it's so fun. It's like that scene would have been great had they just did it anyway to get the confirmation to show that they were kind of on top of it or maybe they'd learned it. But that strategic, like you say this, I'm going to say this, it kind of reframes almost every interaction they have with everyone going forward. And everyone that they've had because you now start to know that they're tactically playing sort of that good cop bad cop if you like to get information they need to get out of sources which is just all the more fun to imagine and think about yeah it's it's definitely you know it's uh it's gamemanship you know yeah yeah <laughs> it's very it's very much like journalistic gamemanship and you know uh how how close can we get to a person revealing information that they really don't want to reveal. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and some of that is, I mean, we get that sense from, um, from obviously like the characters, right. Where Dustin Hoffman's Bernstein is clearly the aggressive one. Robert Redford's Woodward is clearly the laid back one, a, a little bit more like thoughtful of, <laughs> of, of, um, of the person on the other side. Um, like that moment, like I said, going back to where they try to get uh, one of the reporters to go out with you know, their fiance and and uh, past fiance, and um, Robert Redford walks away. He says, "No, you know, if, if you're not comfortable with it, it's okay." It's you know. it's it's a really strange. It's a there's a really strange and great contrast between those two scenes. The first being that Kay Eddie, who's Lindsay Krauss, is the lady they're trying to get to get back with their fiance just temporarily so that they can get that additional bit of information. There's a kind of great moment because he, he's the one who's very restrained and sees that she's uncomfortable and it might put her in a, in some kind of discomfort and he pulls right back. Whereas when they get to Sally Aitken, so Penny Fuller's character and he's like, he, he becomes the hard ass in that scene. He's like, did he, do you think he said that to go to bed with you? Like, and you're like, Woodward, like, what the hell? Like, where did, was that Bernstein talking out of your mouth? Like, like he just went, he's so forthright. It was really interesting to watch those two guys and those two scenes and this movie change and shift. Um, and you talked about like the wordplay and the gamesmanship of them sort of, you know, taking a role when they're interacting with people. I found that really interesting and I'm looking forward to talking about it in later episodes around exactly that, that shift in, in intent that like, I, I can pivot from the, you know, the very sort of sweet, waspy, you know, middle American guy 
um, into, you know, I'm sort of, I, I am get, I am, you know, sharpening my sword, but so to speak, when it comes to, you know, being really incisive and, and, and putting people on the spot to give me the information I need to get what I need to, do, to tell this story, essentially. I mean, that scene in particular, you know, where he kind of pushes, uh, we see it like an earlier scene where the pretty much like the first time Woodward and Bernstein meet where, you know, um, Woodward is, you know, telling Bernstein, you know, we, it's, you know, we don't have enough. We yes. don't have enough. And it, he's one of the very, you know, the one of the times where uh, Ben Bradley, you know, when he says it's too thin, you know, Woodward ends up agreeing it's too thin. You know, he, Woodward is very much the facts guy. Bernstein, you know, he likes <laughs> massaging it, you know, a little bit. <laughs> one plus one equals two, even if you don't see the two, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's, when you talk about change, it's interesting contrast because later on, you know, when they are, close to publishing this story it's the roles reversed where Woodward is pushing Bernstein saying no we have enough we have enough confirmations we have enough you know he gives the analogy um you know if you go to sleep and you wake up one morning and there's snow <laughs> on the ground <laughs> <you know? laughs> then you know obviously it's known <laughs> while you were sleeping <laughs> um, but it's, I, it's I love that change scenarios. I love I love those scenarios that is so great well look <laughs> I just want to say a huge thank you, Robert, for you being a part of this show, my friend. Um, as I said, I'm a huge admirer of your work. Um, I'm very excited for more people to read your great work across Roger Ebert, across Polygon, across Consequences Sound. They can find you at, at 8112 Reviews, and that links off to your site um, for your other reviews that don't get published at those places. Am I right with that? Yes. Yeah. So at 812 Film Reviews. Um, and yeah, you know, I've got uh, new interesting stuff coming out relatively soon. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of the show, my friend. Yeah, thanks. No, thanks for having me on, Blake. That was my very talented guest, Mr. Robert Daniels. You can find Robert, as he said, uh, the best place to find him is on Twitter at at 812 Film Reviews. Uh, that links off to his personal website and all the different places as he is a bit of a writer about town. Thank you so much for listening to every single episode of All the President's Minutes this week. Uh, appreciating the support, appreciate the shares, appreciate the folks reaching out. And uh, particularly appreciate a recent Twitter comment that confirmed for me something I didn't know, which is that Jerry Springer was actually an elected official at some stage, which is not a surprise in the United States. Um, I've been your host, Blake Howard. One Blake Minute is where you can find me. If you want to follow all the President's Minutes on Twitter, at ATPM Pod on Twitter, oneheatminute.com forward slash all the President's Minutes is where you can find us and uh, all the other shows on the feed. Obviously, Miami Nice, which is on hiatus, but all the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and many more cool shows coming up. Thank you so much for listening. We have an amazing lineup of guests continuing on the show um, and we're bringing more episodes to you next week. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes very soon. Take care out there.